0: You've probably seen it on TV rather than experienced it in your own personal life. But it does happen in real life. That is, you have an enemy. All of us have probably encountered one time or another somebody that was opposed to us or in opposition to us. But I'm talking about something beyond that. Somebody that is, well, let's call him a wicked enemy. Not just somebody who is an enemy verbally, but someone perhaps that even would like to see you harmed. What do you do with that kind of situation? Well, we've been looking at some of the Psalms, and I would like to suggest, as I had someone tell me years ago, that just about every experience a human can have, the psalmist had it. There are 150 psalms, and as I've worked my way through them, I see that over and over again. Some of these experiences might not be yours this week, and some of these might not even be your experience so far in life. But they all happen to people today. And even though it might not be our current experience, we can learn from it. So what I'd like for us to do today is take the next psalm in the order that we've been going through and look at when you're dealing with a wicked enemy, what do you do? Well, that was David's experience in Psalm 28. So will you look with me at Psalm 28? David says, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear my voice of my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to their wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance." shepherd them also, and bear them up forever." David begins by simply pleading with the Lord to hear him. He says in verse 1, I cry to you, O Lord, my rock, do not be silent, uh, lest if you do I go down to the pit. So the whole point is this. I want to start with that little word That is a reference to the grave. The point is, he seems to be saying that he's in danger of death. He's certainly in a serious situation. So he simply begins by pleading with the Lord to hear him. What is interesting is the way he addresses the Lord in that situation. He says, To you I will cry, O Lord, my Rock? Wow. Of all the ways we refer to the Lord, have you ever called the Lord your rock? Uh, We call him our Savior in the sense that he saves us from the penalty of sin by dying for us on the cross and being raised from the dead. We call him our Redeemer which is another way of saying the same thing actually. We are in bondage to sin, and as we grow spiritually, uh, he breaks that shackle of sin, but it's that he redeems us. And the idea of redemption is that you pay a price to buy something back. So he has redeemed us from sin as well as saved us from the penalty of sin. We talk about him as Lord Uh, meaning he is the one we follow. He is the one who is our master. Uh, We talk about him as, this is one of my favorites, he is our shepherd. And bound up in that is all kinds of nuances that he provides for us as a shepherd provides for the sheep, that he protects us as a shepherd protects the lamb. But in this passage, David calls him My rock. Why would he ever do that? And what's the point? Well, I think to really appreciate this, you have to know something about the land of Palestine. Uh, There is a legend, myth, that when God created the earth, he dispatched ten angels with bags of rocks to stroll them over the whole planet earth. And as they were flying over Palestine, nine of the ten bags burst. Translated, Palestine is full of rocks. It's a very rocky place. Now, imagine David fleeing from one of his enemies, which happened several times in his life, and he's where? Among the rocks. So he looks around He's being pursued by an enemy, and he says, the Lord is my rock. Now what does he mean by that? Just let your imagination run wild for a minute. I can imagine that means, at least in part, that he is my stability. I mean, when you're threatened to the point of thinking you're going down to the pit that you're going to be facing death, then you would surely think the Lord is my stability when you feel in an unstable situation. I think that beyond that, and this perhaps gets at the real concept, that the Lord is his security. So don't just think of a small rock. Think of a huge rock that you could hide behind that would protect you if some enemy were coming after you. At any rate, he's in a dire straits, so to speak, and he acknowledges that the Lord is his rock. In that situation, the Lord is his solution. So notice again what he says in verse 1. I will cry to you, my rock, do not be silent." Lest if you're silent I go down to the grave I die in other words. He is simply saying Answer my prayer. That's the point of verse 1 It's also the point of verse 2, but at this point he expresses that in an interesting way He says do not be silent if I were going to put that in modern parlance. I would say Lord answer the phone That's sort of the idea here. Uh, Lord, don't don't let the phone ring and you not answer it. I need your help. Now, look at verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Now, in the fact that he says, don't be silent, and he, hot on the heels of that, says, hear my prayer, there seems to be in here a sense of urgency hear me I need you Uh, this is a a, 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 I'm in danger of an enemy so Lord hear me now Uh, matter of fact I said a minute ago something about working my way through the Psalms I've done that before but I'm doing it one more time in a lot more detail and this morning matter of fact for the last couple of days I've been working in Psalm 102. And I got up this morning and I looked at this again and I thought, oh, wow, listen to the first part of Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Does that sound like Psalm 28 or what? It does. But he goes on in 102 and he says this, incline your ear to me, In the day that I call, answer me speedily. Look at your Bible. It's in Psalm 102, verse 2. Answer me and hurry up. Don't be silent. Answer the phone. I need your help now. Now that strikes me as a way I wouldn't talk to the Lord, but I have. You ever done that? You ever been in such dire straits and you said, Lord, I, I, I need some help and I need it Right now. I hate to sound like, Lord, speed it up, but the psalmist did it, so maybe that's what we should do. Lord, I need your help, and I need it now. So that's sort of what's going on back in Psalm 28. But he also says in verse 2, lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Sanctuary. Now, what is the point of that? Why is he saying, lift up your hands? Uh, He's clearly saying, don't be silent. Uh, He's saying, hear my voice. Uh, He says, I cry. He says that in verse 1. He says it again in verse 2. But he says, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. What is the significance of that? Well, apparently, this is symbolizing His dependence on the Lord he's saying Lord the whole point of these first two verses is Lord hear me and this last little expression is saying because I'm dependent on you matter of fact he says in verse 1 if you don't hear me I'm going to the pit I'm going to the grave I'm gonna die so there's urgency in this and there's this acknowledgement I am dependent on you One author said, prayer is an expression of soul dependence on the Lord for help. And that is exactly what's going on here. Now that applies not just when you're facing a deadly enemy, but when you're facing a whole lot of other dire situations, does it not? But I just thought it was significant that he says, I lift up my hands, and that that apparently is an expression of, I'm dependent on you. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Solomon, I said it's 1 Samuel, it's 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And there's this prayer that he prays, and I'm going to read part of it to you. Here's what Solomon says in the dedication of the temple. When the heavens are shut up, And there is no rain because they have sinned against you. When they pray towards your place and confess your name and turn from their, their sins because you afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain to your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine, now, he just said when there is no rain, that's drought. Now he says when there is famine, I guess that's the result of the drought. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight, or mildew, locusts, or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plagues or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward the temple. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his way whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Now, the reason I read this is because I noticed in Psalm 28 it talked about lifting up the hands and I was intrigued where else that said in Psalm 28 It's he's facing a deadly enemy but the same kind of expression is used in 1st Kings 8 and it lists all kinds of things besides just facing a deadly enemy like famine pestilence blight mildew locusts grasshoppers now that was an agricultural place and uh, they, you know, hordes of locusts, swarms of locusts would come in and eat the crops. So that's the kind of thing he's talking about. He talks about sickness and plague. And he says, in that case, when they lift up their hands. So the idea here is in any dire situation, what we need to do is simply pray and ask the Lord to hear us. It's urgent, Lord. We need for you to answer the phone. Do it. We are coming to you, and we are dependent upon you. You ever heard the expression, I'm just going to throw up my hands? You ever used it? What does it mean? I'm going to give up. I'm going to throw up my hands. Well, let me um, make a suggestion. Throw up your hands but not in defeat independence when you get to the end of your rope you don't throw up your hands and give up you throw up your hands toward the sanctuary say lord i'm coming to you so regardless of the situation you're in, in david's case he was facing a deadly enemy you might not be facing that exact situation, but whatever case you're in, throw up your hands. Not in defeat, but in dependence on the Lord. All right, <clears throat> that's the first thing he does. He just asked the Lord to hear him. The second thing he does is in verse 3. Do not take me away from the wicked, or with the wicked, And with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their heart. All right, now at this point, he's shifting from just asking the Lord to hear him to asking the Lord to do something about these wicked people. So this is a shift of subject in the psalm. But notice he says, well, let me describe them. They have evil in their heart. And that's why I titled this How to Deal with a Wicked Enemy. They have evil in their heart. But they don't come at you with a knife or a gun or an action just yet. They speak peace. So these people are deceptive. They are deceptive, deadly enemies. They are hypocritical. They say one thing But in their hearts, they really are bent on something else. So in that situation, they are headed for death. They are sinners, and they're headed for death. So David prays that he would be delivered from death, that he doesn't want to die with them. So he says, do not take me away with the wicked. They are the ones that deserve this punishment. They are the workers of iniquity. They are the ones who speak peace and have evil in their heart. So don't lump me with them. That's sort of the idea here. So David asked the Lord not to judge him with sinners who oppose him. He is saying, don't abandon me to the fate of the wicked who ruthlessly prod plot iniquity against other people, though they speak speak smooth words and they speak of peace, but they're planning evil toward their neighbor. All right, so he's now talking about the wicked, and the first thing he says is, deliver me. But what he really is after is this. Look at verse 4. Give them according to their deeds according to their wickedness and to their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. That strike you as odd? In light of the New Testament, aren't you supposed to love your neighbor? Even love your enemies? And here's a psalm saying in essence, Lord, destroy them. I mean, we're talking now about the enemy. This is really the heart of the psalm. And he's saying, deliver me, but destroy them. Interesting. What is going on here? Well, I think there are a couple of things we need to note that are very important. One is, he is saying they deserve this. Notice the word according is in this verse three Look at verse 4. Give them according to their deeds, according to the wickedness of their endeavors, give them according to the work of the hands. Render them, and here's the key, what they deserve. So he is simply saying, these people are wicked. So Lord, they deserve uh, punishment. So give them according to what They deserve, this is justice in its purest form. So if you look at what we've seen thus far in this psalm, he has asked for God's favor in essence, Uh, he's asked that he be delivered from these hypocritical sinners, and then he's asked that they be justly punished now. There's more to this, and this is very important. Look at verse 5. He says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hand, he shall destroy them and not build them up. Ah, this is important. In verse 4, he's saying, in essence, judge them. Because they deserve it in verse 5 he's saying judge them not just because of what they've done but because of they did not acknowledge the Lord so in verse 4 he says give them according to their deeds give them according to the works of their hands in verse 5 he says because they did not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands so read these two verses together and they are all consumed with their wickedness the works of their hands and they've not acknowledged or considered the work of the Lord or the operation of his hands so it's not just because of their works or the works of their hands verse 4 but because of they had no appreciation for God's work and the operation of God's hands. That's why he is praying that they be judged. Wow. So, David in essence is addressing the congregation and he's confident that the Lord is going to answer and he is saying that I'm I'm praying that they be overthrown permanently because the wicked disregard the Lord and they should be destroyed. Now, what do you do with that? Well, personally, on a personal level, uh, it's perfectly legitimate to love your enemies. That doesn't mean that you have to like them, by the way. Love in the Bible is an act of doing what's best for them. Uh, not just a tender feeling toward them. But Romans chapter 12 says uh, don't, don't, don't lift up a hand to you to hurt them. Don't do that. Uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So just give it to the Lord. And that's what David is doing. Give it to the Lord. Somebody hurt you? Don't get angry and carry that anger around. And certainly don't decide you're going to go get vengeance. What do you do? You give it to the Lord. One of my favorite passages on this subject is Romans 12. Because David's—I mean, Paul says, uh, just give it to the Lord. The Lord said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he will pour coals of fire on their head. <laughs> Look, don't you try to get even. Don't you try to lift the hand to do anything. Give it to the Lord. He'll do a lot better job than you will. So just give it to the Lord. And then he ends that passage by saying don't be overcome with evil, but overcome your evil inclinations by doing good. So on a personal level that's what you do. You just give it to the Lord. It gets it out of your head. And in the meantime let the Lord deal with them. But there is a place in the Scripture there is simply no getting around it. For praying For the just judgment of wicked people. That's there. Here it is. There's no ducking it. I think that we sometimes hearing all the sermons on love your enemies have a hard time putting those two things together. But when there is wickedness and against the Lord especially, there is a place to pray. Lord, stop this. Let me give you what I think is the best illustration of this I've ever heard. Uh, This goes back a bit. Uh, Most of you probably weren't even alive, but do you remember a fellow named Hitler? Would it have been appropriate for Christians to pray for his demise? Would it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the kind of thing we're talking about, that There is a person doing so much evil, there's so much wickedness. They deserve it, and especially if it's against the Lord. And in Hitler's case, it was against the Jewish people as well as a whole bunch of others. And you just say, Lord, stop it. I was looking at this passage and thinking, wow, how do we pray that today? That applied to today? Maybe on a personal level, you've got an enemy and you need to say, Lord, stop him. But I'm going to go one step further. I think there's something going on in this country right now that is worse than Hitler. Know what I'm talking about? He killed how many? Six million? Since Roe versus Wade in 1972, uh, 1973, and I've heard conflicting figures, but both of the figures I've heard are well over 60 million with abortion. And it's gotten so bad. You know about this. It's been in the news lately. It almost makes me angry that a governor who was a former pediatrician can say if the baby is born, We make it comfortable until the mother can decide what to do. And God tells us to pray for the government. Then maybe we should pray that God gives us some leaders who understand the sanctity of life. And that God deals with people who are promoting abortion on demand. Now, let me say something about that traditionally christians have recognized there may be a legitimate cause for abortion and that christian theologians have said this for centuries and that is if the mother's life is in danger and you have to choose between two lives because the mother has current responsibilities and the baby's going to go to heaven anyway it's a, it's a difficult difficult choice but it's allowed in that case that's the conclusion of theologians who are trying to be biblical and honor the sanctity of life and at the same time be dealing with some very difficult situations that's not what's going on in this country what's going on in this country is 10,000 times worse it's now used as a form of birth control matter of fact I heard something about this yesterday on the radio. There's a lady in this congregation who told me the Catholics have a radio station. I didn't even know that. So I made one of the buttons on my radio in my car connect to that station, and I listened to it. Um, And, I mean, if you heard the news once during the day, you've heard it, unless there's something new. Uh, you know, I, I, so i in the car and I was in the car a lot yesterday and uh, I heard the news, I got it, I got it I've heard that three times now, I got it and when that happens I go to the Catholic station. Now there are Christian stations that aren't Catholic but I went to this station and a, a fellow was talking about uh, confession and as a priest he said The one thing I hear more than any other the one thing uh, the, The thing I hear about the most and the thing that people are most grieved about and that was his really his point is ladies confessing abortion Now that's a Catholic and they teach birth control for crying out loud Now what struck me about that and this needs to be said if you've had an abortion There is forgiveness. God forgives sin, right? So I think I've hesitated sometimes to talk about this because I'm not trying to send you on a guilt trip. I'm trying to stop mass murder in the country, and that's different. So individuals have done it, and they can be forgiven, but we've got an industry out there that's promoting it and propagating it, and that needs to be stopped. And maybe what we should do is pray. I haven't had an applause in a long time. (laughs) But it's serious, folks. It's deadly serious. Pardon the pun. All right. David had an enemy, and he prayed that the Lord would deal justly with that enemy. Now, the next thing he does is he starts to praise the Lord. Look at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. So at this point, apparently, God has heard his prayer, and David now says, great, let's praise the Lord. Now let me ask you, did you expect anything else in the Psalms? I mean, how many Psalms do you have to read before you get it that a major, major, major point And the point of the Psalms is whatever's going on, praise the Lord. So this one's no different. He says, blessed be the Lord because he has heard my supplication. And the implication is that he has answered me. So the psalmist believed the Lord was going to answer his prayer because the psalmist believed that God promised to answer prayer. Now that perhaps is underneath this verse now the Lord answers prayer if it is according to his word and if you're trusting him to do it that's done in faith so he is simply saying the Lord heard my voice and he heard my supplication and the point is I'm going to praise him he says in verse 6 blessed be the Lord Praise the Lord. He answered my prayer. Now let me ask you a question. You hadn't an answered a prayer lately? Have you? Did you did you thank the Lord? Some do, most don't. Um, and I think that unfortunately, when we're in dire straits we pray when we have no other place else to go, and then we forget to thank the Lord. So I just want to underscore, God answers prayer, and when he does, we should thank him. I read a story about a little sea coast town where ships began their trip across the ocean. And there was a small church in that town. The pastor was accustomed to printing a year-end statistical report for his congregation One year the parishioners noted an unusual entry in the report. Among the records indicating the facts and figures about the membership roll, there was this notation, missing at sea nine. The members of the congregation didn't know of any member who had been lost at sea, so someone asked the pastor what he meant. Well, He replied, during the year, 11 of you asked me to pray for family members or friends who were going out to sea. Because I only heard two of you ever publicly thank the Lord for the safe return of your loved ones, I assume the remaining nine are missing. (laughs) So I included them in my report. We need to thank the Lord. Now he continues that. In verse 7 he says the Lord is my strength and my shield my heart trusts in him and I am helped therefore my heart greatly rejoices and with my song I will praise him now the psalm began by saying the Lord was his rock now he comes back and says the Lord is my shield. And that's what made me think, well maybe he's talking about a big rock that he could hide behind. Something like a huge shield that protected him from his enemy. At any rate, he adds to that, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my helper. Oh, I can't help but see that verse and think of Can you imagine what verse I'd go to when I see the word helper? How about Hebrews 4, 16? Come boldly to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace to help. You need help? First, go to the Lord. First, go to the Lord. So David said, he's my helper. He's my strength. He's my shield. I'm trusting in him. Did you see that? Did you see that? So what's the point of the Lord being your rock? What's the point of the Lord being your strength? What's the point of the Lord being your shield? And the answer is, I can trust him. I can trust him to protect me. And the verse, the passage psalm starts out with, I'm about to go down to the pit. I'm facing death. And he ends with saying, but the Lord's my helper. He's my strength. He's my shield. I'm going to make it. I am going to praise him for it. Now the key word in verse 7 is the word my. Look at it. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shield. My heart trusts in him. My heart greatly rejoices. With my song, I will praise him. So it's got to be personal, or this is of no value. I can stand up here and say, The Lord is a rock, the Lord is a shield, the Lord is strength, the Lord will help you. But until you personalize this, it is of no value to you. It is my strength, my shield, my help, and therefore my trust and I will praise the Lord. So David is saying the Lord was his source of strength and defense, and that because of that, he is sure that the attackers, the enemy, the deadly enemy, the evil enemy, will fail. And the result of that will be, I'm going to praise the Lord for his answer to prayer. Someone has set this uh, passage to verse that goes like this. The Lord is my strength. He is my shield. On him my heart relies. So I am helped. My heart exalts. To him my thanks arise for all his chosen people too. The source of strength is he. And for his blessed anointed son his saving strength shall be. All right? How are we doing?? Wow. Got, it? Got it? Real simple. Lord, hear me. Here's my petition. Judge these people, and when you do, I'll praise you. Got it? We're at the end of the psalm, right? I mean, I mean, if you get down to where the Lord answered prayer and you praise the Lord for it, we're at the end of the process, right? I mean, isn't that the ultimate point that we learn to praise the Lord? Absolutely. The only problem is there are two more verses left in this psalm. So apparently there's something else. Look at verse 8. The Lord is my strength. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Now, he's saying the Lord is his strength. He just said that. Now he adds to that, he's the saving saving refuge of his anointed. Now anointed is in the Old Testament, they anointed the king with oil uh, to put him into office. And uh, he's the king, and apparently he's being threatened. And so he's really saying in this verse that the Lord was the shield for me, for God's anointed, But this has to do with people because he says uh, he is the saving refuge of his anointed and being king, that includes other people. But that really comes into focus in verse 9 where he says, Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear uh, them up forever. So he ends the psalm Not just by praising the Lord, he includes that, but by praying for other people. Interesting. We sometimes don't even get to the point of praise, but even if you do, maybe beyond praising the Lord, you ought to pray for other people. Now notice what he prays for. Save them. Well, that in essence is what he's been praying for himself throughout the whole psalm. And as you've heard me say before, save in the book of Psalms is deliver me from this mess I was in, in this case, the pit. Bless them. Lord, don't just save them, bless them. The idea behind blessing is benefit them. Don't just save them, bless them. Isn't that good? Then he says, I love this. Bless your inheritance. Bless your inheritance. He didn't say bless the people. He says to the Lord, you bless your inheritance. We are God's inheritance. you know that? You're valuable to him. You are his inheritance. Matter of fact, Paul says that In Ephesians chapter 1, he says we are his inheritance. Now, he is our inheritance, but we are his inheritance. We're precious to him. Then he says, uh, shepherd them. And I take it he means just what shepherds do. Guide the flock, provide for the flock, protect the flock. Shepherd them then what is bear them up? Well, I guess in in this little list by the way This would make a great little study all by itself. Just look at verse 9 save them bless them shepherd them and bear them up boy, that just sums it up doesn't it and Bearing them up probably has to do with sustain them bear them up in the midst of their trial and trouble So here's what's going on Lord I'm in dire straits. If you don't hear me, I'm going to end up dead. So hear me. Now, in my case, it's these deadly, wicked enemies that are after me. Judge them. And when you do, I'm going to praise you. Now, your next job is to say, and by the way, I understand what you're going through, and I'm going to pray for you. The end result is not just what God does for me. The end result is not just me praising the Lord. The end result is me learning from all of this to minister to somebody else. Now hear me, and hear me carefully. Everything you go through in life can be used to minister to somebody else. You get that? No matter what happens to you, it's happened to somebody else. There hath no temptation taken us but such as is common to man. And in that passage he's talking about trials. Whatever's happened to you has happened to somebody else. So based not just on this passage, but the rest of scripture, I'm going to suggest that God allows trials to come into your life to strengthen you and to enable you to minister to other people. I think we get into these dire straits, as I'm calling it today, and we think, why me? Why me? Why did God allow this to happen to me? You ever think that? Sure you did. If you're human and thinking, you thought that, right? Well, let me tell you why it happened. Because God is a good father. And what he really wants is for us to become spiritually mature and strong. And he knows in order to do that, he's got to put us through the exercises. Because if life were at ease and you were a couch potato and you never got off that couch, you'd be weak and flabby. And not strong, right? So what does the coach do when you go out for a team? He makes you run and run and run. That's the best thing in the world he can do for you if you're going to play this game. Now, God's a good coach. The Bible calls him a shepherd. So he lets you go through those trials so you can be strong and mature and not just weak and immature. I've thought this for a long time. A lot of ramifications to this, but I think the current generation is raising a crop of kids that that don't know how to face life. And the latest example of that is the college scandal. Have you heard about the college scandal? Would you like to know what I think about the college scandal? Good, because I'm going to tell you. Here are parents, obviously with a lot of money, that are going to get their kids into some prestigious school because they're going to pay money. So they're cheating the school, right? Is that cheating the school? No, it's not cheating the school. It's cheating the kids. Because if you don't have to go through the rigors yourself, and you study, and you make it on your own, then it's all a farce. Those parents aren't teaching the, cheating the schools. Those parents are cheating their own kids. God is a good parent. So he's going to let you go through dire circumstances so you can learn to do what? Trust him. Right? That's why you're going through what it is you're going through. So you can learn to trust him. And as soon as you learn to do that, that you go teach somebody else to do that. Got it? You got it. You got Psalm 28. But remember, the key word is my. It's got to be personalized. You got to do this. All right. All right. I want to sum this up, and I want to The real point of the psalm, and I've made it broader than that because the scripture does, but the real point of this psalm is that David is facing a wicked enemy and is with the prospects of dying. And I don't want to lose sight of that. That's an extreme example, and most of us don't face that every week. But that's what David faced. In that situation, or any other dire situation, The rules apply. Ask the Lord to give those enemies what they deserve, justice, not just because of what they did, but because of their attitude toward the Lord. In other words, pray that the Lord protects you. That's what the bottom line is. And praise him when he does, and then pray that he will teach other people the same thing. That's the sum of this psalm. I think we pray for people. Uh, We've made an emphasis on praying for people on Sunday morning. And virtually all the prayer requests are physical. Now that is appropriate and that has a place. And maybe it would not be appropriate to publicly pray for some other kinds of needs. But certainly in our personal prayer life, we should not only pray for physical needs, but for spiritual needs as well. And that's what he's doing here. He got to the bottom line and he prayed that they, the Lord would save them and bless them and lead them and sustain them. So that's what we need to do. But to come back to the main point of this psalm, which in principle applies to other situations, the Lord will protect you when you trust him. Amen, amen, Amen and amen. In the 19th century, there was an evangelist named D.L. Moody. He was the Billy Graham of the day. D.L. Moody had a song leader named Iris Sankey. Iris Sankey was uh, the song leader for crusades, both in other parts of the world and in America as well. One day, he was traveling on the Delaware River on a steamer. And there were some people aboard who recognized him, and they asked him to sing a song that he had composed. He was glad to sing for them, but said he would rather sing a hymn written by William Bradbury, Savior, like a shepherd, lead me. So he sang that hymn, and as he sang, He invited the people to join in with him and sing that familiar hymn. When he finished, a man came up to him and said, were you in the army, Mr. Sankey? Yes, he said, I joined in 1860. Did you ever do guard duty at night in Maryland about 1862? Yes, I did. The stranger then said to Sankey, I was in the Confederate Army, and I saw you one night in Sharpsburg. You were wearing your blue uniform, and in my gun sights, as you stood there in the light of the full moon. Then, just as I was about to pull the trigger, you began to sing that same song. My mother often sang it, but I never expected to hear it at midnight by a soldier on guard duty. I realized you were a Christian, and I couldn't shoot you. The Lord protects us from our daily enemies when we trust him and in all other dire situations. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us an example by David, which by our standards is a bit extreme, but Lord, thank you that the principle applies, that we can trust you. We can trust you regardless of what is going on. We pray that the Spirit of God will indelibly impress this upon our hearts, that we would learn not only to praise you, but to teach others to trust you as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.